0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think.
1: Talking with bishops from all over the world and theologians, two questions kept being asked at the Synod. One, What's happened to the theology of the body? We haven't heard much about it in the last couple of years. And certainly the working document we came into the synod with, there was nothing of the theology of the body. Now, thankfully, there's a lot of the theology of the body in Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis's uh, apostolic exhortation that came out of the this synod. This, but the second question I heard a lot about from bishops, and again, more on this tomorrow, what do we do with gender ideology? Right? Well, how do we respond to this? I don't. We don't know how to uh, respond to this challenge. So, but first, so what is the theology of the body? Where does it come from? Uh, what is it? What is it not? Um, the theology of the body refers to a series of weekly general audiences given by uh, Pope Saint John Paul II at the beginning of his pontificate between the years 1979 and 1984 every Wednesday. The Holy Father would give an address to an audience in St. Peter's Square, or on bad weather days, an audience in the Paul VI Auditorium um, across the square, and he would he gave this extensive catechesis on the human person, on love, on marriage. Um, there's a famous story about a good friend of the Holy Father um, having lunch with him during this period, and he said to him, "You know, um, Holy Father." Those people out in the square have no idea what you're talking about. And John Paul II said, it's not really for them. It's for those who are going to come after. So he knew that this was uh, going to have an impact, that it was going to be for the, for the universal church, as all papal teaching is, but this one in a unique way. Um, so... The interest in the uh, catechesis on the theology of the body continued. It was originally translated by, into different languages by the Vatican newspaper, l'osservatore Romano, um, including so the English translation was done by the newspaper staff, which is why, over the course of five years, you could have the same Itali- Italian terms, because the catechesis were given in Italian, translated four or five different ways, which was not great. Um, but again, the interest uh, continued, so the Daughters of St. Paul gathered up this material and published it in four volumes um, in the uh, early 1980s to mid-1980s, and then in 1997, the Daughters gathered all four volumes into a single volume with um, Vite, Pope the encyclical letter Pope Paul VI, as a backdrop, and some of John Paul II's more authoritative teaching, because papal catechesis, it's magisterial teaching, but it's not at a high level of authority or solemnity. Um, And they asked some obscure person to write a foreword. It's a really good foreword, by the way, um, if you can make that out on the slide. But the problem with this edition, even though it's a nice one-volume thing, it's still the uneven translation by the L'Osservatore Romano. So um, in 2006, Mikhail Waldstein, a biblical scholar who's been all over the place, he's been in Goming, he's been at Abe, now he's at Franciscan, did a retranslation from the Italian, consulting against the Polish original, because now we know that Cardinal Wojtyła had all of this material written in Polish before his elevation to the papacy, unexpectedly, and then he decided to give it as catechesis. So Waldstein produced a much more consistent, much more thorough translation, um, checked against the original. So if you're going to do serious study, this is the edition to use. The, the index alone is worth the price of the book, to be honest. I really like the forward, though, in the 97... Never mind. Sorry. Um, so... Uh, it just uh, a few background issues. First of all, it, 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 the theology of the body—it's—it's it's interesting because it, it is the work. W- There's material in the Waldstein edition that wasn't given as papal catechesis, so that's not actually magisterial teaching, right? It's—it's it's interesting and it gives us a fuller picture. Right? But that would be the work of Karol Wojtyla as a private Catholic philosopher-theologian. Um, some of, sometimes when you have pub- Catholic publishers publishing books by popes who have had careers as scholars, like Karol Wojtyla, John Paul II, or Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, they'll kind of play fast and loose. right? So you get Karol Wojtyla's book, uh, Bishop Karol Wojtyla, by the way, that picture there, that's Bishop Wojtyla in 1963 in Rome for the Second Vatican Council. Um, but the love and responsibility written in Polish by Bishop Wojtyla in 1960, right? And yet we have publishers who will stick the picture, a picture of John Paul II on the cover. Why? Because it sells more books, right? If you have a, the Pope on the cover of a book. But so it, it, it does matter, right? Is this is this love and responsibility is a work by Carol Wojtyla. The acting person is a work by Carol Wojtyla. The theology of the body, at least the material that was given as uh, weekly general audiences, that's magisterial teaching. That's the church's universal pastor. So it has a different kind of authority, even though it's part of this larger body of work. The sources that... um, St. John Paul II draws on in these catecheses, Um, his own kind of unique approach, uh, which scholars have dubbed Lublin Thomism, which is basically taking the the metaphysics and the metaphysical anthropology of St. Thomas Aquinas and bringing it in contact with modern a strands of philosophy like phenomenology, which offers a rigorous reflection on human experience. Um, so Carol Wojtyla, as a professional philosopher, explored the way in which experience could shed light on the person who acts, right? So because action, action follows being. So if a, a being is capable of certain kinds of action, what kind of being must it be? So he Unlike most modern phenomenologists, he doesn't just stop at an analysis of experience. He asks the deeper metaphysical questions because he was trained in the thought of St. Thomas as well as St. Augustine. Um, He wrote his doctoral dissertation in Rome on um, faith according to uh, St. John of the Cross using Thomistic categories. So he draws on that formation, on that training. Um, Michael Waldstein... Very good man, very good scholar thinker. He's a little uncomfortable with phenomenology, so he'll attribute a lot of uh, St. John Paul II's more experiential turn to what he calls his Carmelite personalism, his exposure to John of the Cross and others. And it's true he has a he has a very dynamic concept of faith, which fits with his dynamic concept of action. So there's it's it's true, but again, he you have this unique kind of um, methodological hybrid with John Paul II, um, there, and there were other people in um, Krakow and Lublin working on the same project. It's just we we kind of know um, Wojtyla's thought most because he later occupied the chair Peter. And certainly scripture. The catechesis are really a series, as I'll show you shortly, a series of reflections or meditations on scripture. Um, scripture is the the kind of the constant and unifying source in this teaching. But let's let me say a word about what the theology of the body is not, because there is some static, some what do we call it these days, fake news out there about the theology of the body. Sometimes people's enthusiasm get ahead of the reality, and so you can hear some popular presentations which almost kind of turn this into. A Catholic version of the Book of Mormon that has fallen from heaven in these last days to give us a, a, a new—it's not that, right? It's a—it's an authoritative commentary on Scripture from the Church's universal pastor. Yes, but again, let's let's not oversell it. Other popularizers will sometimes describe the theology of the body as a gospel of sex, and what they're really doing sometimes without being aware of it, perhaps often without being aware of it, is they're alighting the pansexualism of uh, our American culture and uh, the thought of Sigmund Freud with the teaching of John Paul II. So you'll hear statements like, according to the theology of the body, popularizations, eros is the atomic energy of the human soul. I heard a popular presenter Make that claim at a conference, and I wanted to jump up and say, "Excuse me, no, that's Sigmund Freud. For John Paul II, grace is the atomic energy of the human soul, right? Um, you'll hear statements like, "Christians shouldn't retreat from the sexual revolution. they should complete the sexual revolution." And that's what the theology of the body does. In other words, we can outsex an oversexualized culture. It's a bad reading. It's not what the, John Paul II is trying to do in the theology of the body. Some theologians have criticized it because they say it's, you know, it's trying to kind of out-romance, a romance-starved culture. You, know, you find your soulmate, and then you can experience total self-gift in a mutually fulfilling, a fulfilling egoism adieu for the rest of your life together. Right? That's not John Paul II either. For John Paul, this—I mean—that's a very, very selective reading of just isolated passages. Because for him, a married couple is a family, and a family is a domestic church, which has an ecclesial and a social mission. This is not about finding your soulmate and living happily ever after. There's much more going on here. Um, getting uh, so it, it is not—it is not trying to out-sexualize or out-romance. A culture that is fixated on bad and toxic expressions of both. Um, others have suggested, well, it's basically just an ap- apology for the encyclical letter of, of Pope Saint Paul VI, *Humani Vitae*, on human life and on birth control. That gets a little closer to the mark, but if that's the, if the claim is this is all the theology of the body is, it misses the mark again, right? Because that's That's reductionist, ultimately. Um, But, I mean, I said it's a little closer to the mark. Why did I say that? Um, When, as I mentioned, uh, Bishop Wojtyla took part in the Second Vatican Council. Um, He had written Love and Responsibility in 1960. Pope Paul VI didn't read Polish. But when the work was translated into Italian and French by 1963, Pope Paul VI read it and was impressed. And he put Bishop Wojtyla on the study commission founded by his predecessor, the Pontifical Study Commission on Family, Population, and Birth, which everyone just called the Birth Control Commission, right? because it just is easier to say. So Bishop Wojtyla took part in those meetings while he was in Rome for the council. He took, and over time, Pope Paul VI repeatedly expanded the uh, commission's membership, moving from just a handful of theologians and canon lawyers to include doctors, scientists, married men, married women, from from different parts of the world. Um, But then in 1965, the council ended. Last document of the Council of Gaudi Metspez, which um, Bishop Wojtyla helped to draft. Um, was promulgated by Paul VI, the bishops went home. Wojtyla went back to Poland. But the commission continued to meet through the rest of 65 and into 66. And when he tried to return to Rome for more meetings, the Polish communist authorities pulled his exit visa and wouldn't let him out of the country. So what became the minority position um, on the commission that the church should not change its teaching um, lost what was its only member who was actually had already argued a positive philosophical case for the church's teaching on sexuality and on birth control. Um, So the commission split. A, A majority recommended that the church revise its teaching. A minority said the church should not do that because of the authority of that teaching. Pope Paul VI Two years later, in Humanae Vitae, sided with the minority to the shock of many people in the world. But what we don't know is, would Wojtyła's voice have made a difference in that final decisive uh, set of meetings of the commission? We don't know. But what we do know is when that Polish bishop and later cardinal was unexpectedly elevated to the chair of Peter, 10 years after Humanae Vitae in 1978, a new catechesis of the church in the area of the human person, marriage, family, sexuality, was on the top of his pastoral agenda because he had seen the devastation that the sexual revolution had wrought behind the Iron Curtain in Poland, and he was able to... The the communists finally let him out. He was able to uh, visit the West, so he knew what was going on um, in other parts of the world as well. I think... The appropriate backdrop to understand what the theology of the body is trying to address is to think of it as a response to three kind of shifts or seismic changes in the modern world. Um, Monsignor Brian Bransfield wrote a book, The Human Person According to John Paul II, which argues that the theology of the body is a an effort to articulate an understanding of the human person which can respond to the challenges and questions raised by the Industrial Revolution, the Sexual Revolution, and our ongoing technology revolution. So let me say a little bit about each one of those three things. The Industrial Revolution, of course, refers to the massive expansion of industry in the developed world during the 18th through 20th centuries, still ongoing in parts of the world now. Um, Obviously, there are good and bad results, right? The Industrial Revolution made a huge array of new products and services much more widely and cheaply available. So what used to only be available to the wealthy now became available to middle and working class families. But it was also incredibly destructive to land and to labor. All of the imagery, those of you who got the the Tolkien reference earlier, right? All of the imagery in The Lord of the Rings and the Cimmerillion that Tolkien uses to symbolize the impact of evil on his mythological world is drawn from the impact of the Industrial Revolution on his own beloved English countryside. But more than just being toxic to the land, um, it was toxic to families. Because first it removed fathers from the family and made child-rearing just women's work. But increasingly, especially for poorer families, women were driven into the workforce, and sometimes even children. This is where we get our child labor laws. So home was no longer a center of formation and life. It became where you sleep when you're not working. The deeper and often unnoticed impact of the Industrial Revolution is that within the space of a generation or two, it flipped the way most people thought about children from a blessing to a burden. Because once work is outsourced from the family, from the home, then every mouth to, uh, to feed born into the home is a, a drain on the family's ne- economic well-being. Right? which causes people to begin to think of children as, oh, we can't afford children. Children are expensive. Children are, they, they are, they're going to pull us down financially. That powered a search for new and effective forms of contraception. Sexual revolution didn't begin in the 20th century. It was already underway in the 19th. Victorian morality, which had already rejected both Aristotle and Christian. Christianity as an explanation for the link between sex and marriage um, was a reaction to the first stirrings of of the sexual revolution. But the sexual revolution kicked into a new gear with the advent of modern forms of contraception, especially oral contraception. Developed in the 1950s, it hit the market in the United States in 1960, And you can look at the social scientific data, just enormous shifts in attitudes and behaviors, skyrocketing rates of sex outside of marriage, unwed pregnancy, divorce, abortion, right? Seismic shift. What had been in previous generations, a single thing, marriage. You got married, you had a sexual relationship with your spouse that enabled you to receive the gift of children, and you have a a growing family. right? It's one thing. Marriage, sex, family. The, in the sexual revolution cut those bonds. So those became three separate dissociable realities. Because contraception said, you can have sex without having to commit. Because you don't have to be afraid of pregnancy. And if your contraception fails, well, there's always abortion, which is always the backstop for failed contraception. So you can have Sex without marriage. And you can get married and choose to have an intentionally childless marriage because children are expensive. So you can have dogs instead of children. Right? They hear people going to their parents and saying, we'll give you grand dogs. We're not going to give you grandchildren. They're, they're, they're too, too expensive. So one of our kids does that. They're out of the family. I mean, that's just not happening. Um, oh, did you see this is being recorded? Oh, well. Um, thankfully, they, some of them do, um, but that's all right. They 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 would agree. Um, children, right? You can have children without having either sex or marriage because now we have assisted reproductive technologies. So now we have three unrelated things which had been one throughout human history. Um, Mary Eberstadt really chronicles the devastation sown in our culture by the sexual revolution. Cardinal Pell, when I was at the synod with him, said if he had the time and money, he would have gotten a copy of Adam and Eve after the pill for every one of his brother bishops at the synod, right? So this is why I think it's horrifying to talk about the theology of the body completing the sexual revolution. It's an antidote to it. It's not the completion of it. Her, Eberstadt's more recent book, Primal Screams, documents, although I think she could go further in some ways, and I'll try to extend it a little bit tomorrow, basically says that one of the things the sexual revolution has done is it has um, undermined people's sense of belonging, because we come from even, even more so today than ever. I mean, families have always been wounded after the fall, but now... So many people come from families that are broken by divorce, by infidelity, by all of these terrible uh, things that the sexual revolution has enabled. Um, So people don't know who they are or where they belong. So this is where our identity politics comes from. They don't know where to belong, so they find a group and they identify in with that group. And then if someone else criticizes their group, it produces rage because you're not just having a political disagreement, you are attacking someone's identity. I, I think she's, she's right about this, um, in terms of this is some of what the sexual revolution has given us. And then we have the fallout of all of this, right? Um, the recent court decisions, Obergefell uh, versus Hodges, right, which some people call the redefinition of legalizing a same-sex marriage, Some people say is legalizing marriage. I think actually it's the court just reflecting where the culture went 50 to 70 years earlier, once we took fertility and permanence out of marriage, right? Because if marriage has no connection to children, no orientation to children, and it's not a permanent union between men and women, why can't two people of the same sex marry? But as Justice Roberts said in his dissent to Obergefell, why can't multiple groups of adults marry? So polyandrous marriage, by the logic of Obergefell, is next, has to be. Um, And then we had the Bostock versus Clayton County, which basically said um, gender identity is completely unrelated to the body and its sex. So as David Crawford and Michael Hanby note, writing in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, effectively, we're all transgender now. It's just, for many of us, Our identity happens to our gender identity um, happens to align with our bodily reality, and then we have the ongoing technology revolution. And again, this is I am a luddite. You might tell by the the, the, you know the the clumsiness of of the the uh, presentation here, but this is not just. Anti-technology, because obviously technology has brought with us some incredible blessings, like during the pandemic when we were all locked down, but we could still work or study or go to school and do all of these things. Um, more and more of our lives are shaped by, mediated by, technology. And again, it, it, we could have people in different parts of the world listening in at this very moment to this conversation. That's, that's pretty amazing. But we can have that same communication technology with uh, taking a family sitting around their dinner table and make it so that no one is interacting with anyone else. right? You've all seen pictures like that. Pope Francis says, that's not a family, that's a boarding house. And he's right. Um, the, the thing I'll point to here and I'll come back to tomorrow is the fact that we can we, we spend so much time in virtual worlds and we can change our online avatars or appearances. We can change a lot of things about our profiles at will really gives people more and more the impression that that's our identity. If you can change your screen presence, why can't you just change your physical appearance? The body becomes a screen. In other words, on which I project an identity to the world around me. And then we have what is unambiguously the dark side of technology, right? Where technology has taken and weaponized the ideology of the sexual revolution and put it at people's fingertips with our pornography epidemic right? A group of trial lawyers in the United States a couple of years ago did a study and concluded that 57% of all cases of divorce in the United States involve one or both parties having some kind of compulsive use or addiction of pornography. Destroys relationships. Focus on the family estimated that the average age of first exposure to pornography in the United States is seven years old in houses that have devices that connect to the internet. And I've already mentioned assisted reproductive technologies, right, which complete that d- dissociation of marriage, sex, family that the that the sexual revolution launched. So, I think that's that's the backdrop for the theology of the body. So, what I said, I spent a little time saying what it isn't. Let me say a little bit about what it is, and hopefully the next talks by Father Petrie and myself in the, in the coming day will flesh this out. No pun, t- actually pun is intended. So yeah. Um, if, if I'm on an elevator and I'm only going up one floor right? and someone sees a copy of the Theology of the Body that I'm holding and this has happened to me at conferences by the way. They say, what is that? What, how, how, what's your one floor elevator pitch? Well... If they have a little background, mine goes something like this. It's a biblical and iconic anthropology that highlights the body's capacity to give and receive personal love at any age and in any state of life. It's about the the capacity and expressivity of the body in our vocation to love. Let me walk through a couple of the key terms in that definition. So biblical. Biblical. What do I mean by that? Um, The way in which St. John Paul II reads scripture in the Theology of the Body, um, I think he almost gives us a tutorial in it, in the first chapter of his encyclical on moral theology, Veritatis Splendor, where, again, he starts with a text from Matthew 19. In the Theology of the Body, it's the dialogue with the Pharisees about divorce. In this case, it's Jesus and the rich young man. And he says the story of Jesus and the rich young man in Matthew 19 gives us an opportunity to listen again, to listen in once more on Jesus's moral teaching. So what is he doing? Remember that before John Carol Wojtyla was a philosopher, he was a playwright. He, He wrote and performed plays. He's saying, listen, you're in the audience. Let's listen in to this dialogue between Jesus and the young man. And the young man comes to Jesus and says, good master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. And he walks them through the, You, you know, the dialogue, right? John Paul hits pause though. And he says, the young man's question, what must I do to have eternal life? He says, that's the question in our hearts. This is the same question we, it's what is the, what does God want from me? What's a good life? What is God's expectation of me? So what has John Paul done? He said, you're not in the audience. You're on the stage. You're having this conversation with the Lord. His question is your question. The rich young man is John Q. Everyman. He is Adam. Oh, Same starting point as the theology of the body, right? So you start with the questions of the human heart, which Christ himself is the answer incarnate, too. So, his method of reading scripture is to invite readers into the text and allow the text to disclose them to themselves, but also to reveal Christ to them, right? Because Christ is ultimately the one who shows us who we are. If you've ever done um, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, It's it's a kind of a parallel way to read scripture. Ignatius has you read texts from the Gospels, and then he has you use your imagination to picture yourself in the text and ask the Holy Spirit to guide your imagination. So you're standing in front of Jesus. What are you saying to him? What is he saying to you? What happens next? John Paul II, instead of using the imagination, uses the mind and gets us to enter into the dramatic scene which Scripture gives us and reflect on the way in which the experience the text describes sheds light on our experience. It's a really unique way to read Scripture, right? But it's a way to recover the idea that God speaks to us in Scripture. We just have to take the the time and space and listen. I describe this anthropology as iconic, Right? So, an icon, of course, is a visual theological presentation of a Christian mystery or figure. Um, so, which is why those of you who know something about icons know you don't paint an icon, you write an icon because it's a theological presentation, it's a theological statement. Right? So, we In this case, we have an icon of Christ the Savior flanked by the Blessed Mother and John the Baptist. Because this icon has three panels, it can be described as a triptych. You're looking at uh, the mystery of our salvation through these three images of these key figures in salvation history. So what I'm going to suggest to you is that the theology of the body, it gives us an icon of the human person, read through the three panels of creation, the fall or historical man, and redemption, which begins in our entering into the life of grace now and then is completed eschatologically in heaven. So as Mary Healy points out in her commentary, we could split that fourth panel and make this a quadriptic. It's just John Paul II typically uh, refers to this as a triptych. Um, so the experiences that are described in the creation story in Genesis, we can trace through the fall, but then we can trace into Christ's healing work of redemption. In each case, each of these panels is introduced by a, a in-depth meditation on a biblical text. So again, this is meditating on the text of Scripture to allow Christ to reveal us to ourselves, to show us who we are. One thing I would point out about this image is that it's important to note that for John Paul II, this image describes every human person who lives today. Not just some, right? Because every human being who is alive today is a creature of God who is made by God, who is called to communion with God. Every human person who is alive today lives in a world that has been marked by the fall in their own experience, and they experience wounds from the fall because of their own sins, because of the sins of others, because of the sin that's embedded in the world around us. But Every human being who is alive today lives in a world that has already begun to be transformed by the grace of redemption that comes to us in Jesus Christ. It's just some people are aware of this last panel and some aren't. That's why the church, he says in Veritatis Splendor 7, exists to make the encounter with Christ possible so that other people can discover the full reality of who they are and who they're called to be by encountering Jesus Christ. And I said, I use the word anthropology, right? An understanding of the human person. A biblical, iconic anthropology. It's what the theology of the body is. To read this anthropology rightly, there are a few hermeneutical keys, I guess we could call them. Um, And again, these are going to get developed more in the talks that follow by Father Petrie and myself. Um, St. John Paul II often speaks of the hermeneutics of the gift. If we're going to read the world around us, if we're going to read ourselves, read our bodies rightly, we have to do it through the lens of gift. God doesn't owe us existence. God doesn't owe the world existence. He creates and he sustains us in existence in a sheer act of love and generosity. Right? So, if we're going to understand who we are and our place in the world, we have to start with that fundamental metaphysical reality the gift of creation, the gift of our own existence. But as Christians, we read that gift in light of Christ, right? Because, and already the New Testament does this for us, the word through which God speaks creation into being in Genesis 1, we're told in the opening of John's Gospel, that word is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God if we want to understand who we are, we have to draw, John Paul says this over and over again in his writings, we have to draw near to Jesus Christ. He says this in his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis. Um, I mentioned he he helped write the Second Vatican Council's pastoral constitution on, uh, on the church, Gaudium et Spes. Two of his two Two of its texts kind of form hermeneutical keys, not just of the theology of the body, but the whole of John Paul II's magisterial teaching. Um, Gaudium et spes 22, Christ, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals us to ourselves and discloses our most high calling. To understand who we are, we have to look at the person of Jesus Christ. We, are, we cannot understand the reality of who we are and who God wants us to be without Christ. Second, God Emmetspez 24, man, the only creature of the visible world whom God created for his own sake, can only realize himself through a sincere gift of self. We're created for love, we're created for communion with God, with one another. It's the only thing that fulfills us and makes us happy. Our body is an integral part of that reality. It's an integral part of how we give ourselves as gift um, to God, to one another. And then uh, finally, notice in my one floor elevator pitch, the theology of the body uh, describes any state in life, the body's capacity to give and receive love at any age and in any state of life whether a person is single, married, a consecrated virgin, or religious celibate, we give and receive love as embodied persons, right? It just looks different in those different states of life. But the reality of who we are and the reality of what we're called to, self-donative love, it's the same. It's just expressed and lived out differently. Okay, I think I'm going to stop talking at this point and open the floor for your questions, comments, observations, and Father Jonah will remind me if I fail to do so that I have to repeat your question after you ask it so it picks up better for the recording. He's just waiting for me to forget to do that. So please, help me out. Uh, Yes, please. Fact, the sexual revolution was um, people's sense of identity yeah, yeah. Uh, I, again I'm, I am so, <laughs> right off the bat swing and a miss okay. uh, can I elaborate a little further on how the sexual revolution undermines or destabilizes people's identity um, thank you Father Jonah <laughs> and every time yep yep um, again, I'm I'm summarizing an argument that's made, I think, uh, at greater length and and in a fairly compelling way by Mary Eberstadt in her book Primal Screams. Eberstadt's argument is because one of the things that the what her term for the sexual revolution in that book is the Great Scattering, right? Because What the sexual revolution does is it breaks down families, it breaks down communities, it breaks down churches. And you can look around our world, you can see some of that devastation. So typically, in previous generations, when people were born, they would get their sense of identity from, I'm the son or daughter of this man and this woman. I'm part of this family. And I'm part of this community. And I belong to this church. Those are all things that gave people a sense of... Stability in place, and knowing who they are, and because now those things, for many people, are broken or not available. They, the the question of our time, Everstadt says, especially for young people, is who am I? Wh- who do I belong to? Where do I belong? Where do I find that? And and again, her argument is this: this is what has created our current identity politics because I can't find my identity through my family, my church, my community, I got to find a group. I got to find a group to belong to and that's going to give me my identity. And then again if I belong to this group and someone criticizes my group, they're not making a politic we're not having a political conversation, they are attacking my very identity. So the response is rage, which is one reason why our current politics is so toxic, because it's taken as a, an attack on identity. Um, I think I think she's, she's on to something, I, and I do think we haven't thought enough about the way in which the sexual revolution hasn't just impacted family, hasn't just impacted marriage. It's impacted people's sense of self. I'm going to argue tomorrow that I think uh, The rise and rapid uh, spread in our culture of gender ideology is another symptom of this. Destabilization of identity. People don't know who they are, so they look for answers outside of their, their family, outside of their faith, if they have one. Great question. Other questions or comments? Yes, please.
0: Um, I'm just kind of wondering, in light of everything you said, do you think like society will ever swing the other way, um, back from this like, sexual revolution and like, disregard for the respect of the body of the man? Just because like the way we're like our God-given orientation do we eventually go and as go back to kind of like the real theology.
1: So the question is, um, do do I think that society will ever kind of um, Come back from the uh, the devastation sown by the sexual revolution and recover um, a, a better understanding of the body, the person. Um, is that is that a fair summation? Okay, um, yeah, I, great question. Uh, I'll be honest. I mean, I have no crystal ball. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw on John Paul II in my answer. I mean John Paul II I think saw and again this is I think one reason why he prayed so much reflected so deeply on the hum- the, the what Gaudium and Spez describes as the problem of the human person we have all this great science and technology and knowledge and yet we've become completely opaque to ourselves we don't know who we are so how do we how do we get that back I think John Paul saw the 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 devastation that was out there in the culture but what did he talk about? He talked about a new springtime of the church, right? That would be the fruit of the new evangelization. I think the way we get back something of an authentic culture, in which people understand the gift of their existence, the gift of the body, the gift of sexuality, is by bringing people back in touch with the the author of those gifts, right? Um, our word. So how do you build a culture of life, to use another of John Paul II's phrases? You start by remembering that the root of our word culture is cultus. The root of a culture is what it worships. Culture that worships pleasure, power, technological efficiency is going to produce one kind of environment. But a culture that worships the author of life and love it's gonna look very, very different. So how do we change the culture? How do we rebuild the culture? We start with evangelization. That was John Paul II's vision, right? The, the, again, I come back to Veritatis wonder 7. The church exists to make the encounter with Jesus Christ possible. And that's how we start to get the culture back. Um, and I do think there's a lot of people Out there in the culture, people your age and older who have seen the devastation and are like, I don't want this. We've got to be able to do better than this, Um, because what the culture has to offer is not life giving. It's not fulfilling. So people are hungry, um, I think. So it's a we have an opportunity to share to share the good news I thought I saw a hand flicker. Oh, yes, Um, second row, and then directly behind you in the third row. So you're second, yes.
0: Um, So one of the striking things that you mentioned with the Industrial Revolution was that children go from uh, being blessings to burdens. And I'm wondering um, if you could elaborate more on that, especially when considering something like the high rate of uh, not just infant, but also, uh, you know, mother mortality uh, in the uh, in the childbearing process. Um, yeah, is, it, it just seems surprising to me that um, as we've uh, gotten lower rates of mortality, the children have gone to be more of a burden.
1: It, it, so how do we correlate um, the fact that we have uh, through improved medical care, reduce the risks associated with childbearing to nonetheless people viewing children more and more as a burden. Um, is that fair, summation? Okay, um, great, great point, great question. Um, I think I, again, I think this is something we have not thought about much, but um, I think it was easier. And you still see this in non-Western cultures, by the way, um, in cultures where um, that have not been so impacted by the industrial and sexual revolutions, where people in those cultures still tend to see children and see children very naturally and easily as a gift, in spite of the fact that their rates of child and and maternal mortality are probably higher than ours. Um, I think this is the result of In previous generations and certainly in biblical times, every child born into the family strengthens the family, not just in terms of its uh, relational well-being, but tangibly, economically. right? Because if a family is a center of productivity and work and not just a a place where you you sleep at night or whatever, then every child, if you have a family farm, if you have a family business, every child who's born becomes someone else who can contribute to that enterprise. The family is stronger. But when work gets outsourced from the home, now that correlation is broken and people say, oh, well, look, there was just a study by the U.S. government that says it costs over $180,000 to raise a child from infancy to age 18, not even counting college tuition. Wow, that's a lot of money. I can't afford that. Let's never have kids. Right. So I think economic factors have really played an imp- had a, had an impact here that we're just kind of seeing and figuring out. But but again, you you really do see the the difference in mentality when you look at less industrialized cultures because people who people who have not uh, been impacted in the way we have have a much easier time understanding what when scripture says every child is a gift. John Paul II says every child born in the world is a renewal of the mystery of creation. Because now you have the image of God being born into the world. It's God's act of creation and creative love all over again. Right? That's that's what's but again he's just synthesizing what scripture says. But that's become harder to see in our culture, I think. Great question, really thoughtful question. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, my question is about uh, sexual revolution. Uh, when I move in America, I'm fussing with uh, a concept
0: that I didn't hear when I was in my country, sexual orientation. <laughs> and just right now, I'm struggling to understand some
1: fact about, so my question is, does uh, the sexual revolution Create the
0: difference between uh, sex as a part of the human body and sex as like a
1: mind or a concept in the human race. So um, the question has to do with um, the concept of sexual orientation, which is not found in again other cultures, um, but seems to be very prominent in our culture, impacted by the sexual revolution. Um, how do we how did we get there? How did we come to distinguish um sex as a physiological reality from sex as identity Is that f- and sex as a determined um drive i'm gonna i'm gonna part of your question I will try to answer much more directly tomorrow because um especially when it comes to the separation of sex and gender identity, which um, is, a, is a common one in our culture. But sexual orientation, um, it's a term that gets used a lot. Um, it's really, frankly, both philosophically and scientifically, medically, a misnomer. Um, there, clearly, there is such thing as sexual attraction right? And sexual attraction, we don't understand all of what causes it. It's a kind of a complex of physiology, upbringing, um, environment, uh, behavior. Um, It's responsive to all of those things. There has never been a major scientific study, secular studies of sexuality. I'm talking about Kinsey in the mid-20th century, the Klein sexual orientation grade in 1978, that has supported the idea of a fixed orientation toward one sex or another. No, no study has ever held that. But it's been a politically useful category to talk about sexual orientation, people being born that way, Lady Gaga, anyone? Um, And your, your orientation is your destiny, right? That's, again, What science tells us is, yes, there's some impact on our physiology in terms of sexual attraction, but sexual attraction is malleable. It's malleable to environment. It's malleable to behavior. Um, People can adopt same-sex sexual behavior when they're in a same-sex-only environment, like a prison or a boarding school, and then... Uh, go back to opposite sex sexual behavior when they're released from that environment. So the the data just doesn't fit that concept. And furthermore, it's bad philosophy, especially from a Christian perspective, because what it says is this is your identity and your destiny. You, you have to be true to who you are and act. It's a denial of human freedom, right? Um, Michael Hannon, had an essay in First Things a few years back. Now he's Father Urban Hannon, in which he gave an analogy and said, um, "Imagine if we found a gene that might contribute to some people having trouble living, uh, practicing monogamy. Would we call them unfaithfuls and distinguish them from faithfuls?" No, that's a that's a terrible. That's a terrible. Again, it's a denial of both human and Christian freedom. Um, Hannon's argument goes on to say, sexual orientation, whether homosexual or heterosexual, binds opposite sex attracted people to a a sinful um, tendency that they have. And by the way, we all have sinful tendencies, sexual and otherwise, right? Um, it, It kind of erases that. And it blinds same sex excuse me opposite sex attracted people because it says all of your sexual drives are fine you're normal right so opposite sex attracted people don't have to look at their own disordered sexual drives right it's it's yeah it it the concept of sexual orientation not scientifically supported a, a really poor philosophical construct. It actually dates back to the Victorians, and then it was given a veneer of scientific respectability by people like Freud and others. It's not, it's not a good way to understand the human person, nor, nor the data that we have about human behavior. Last question. Last question, up in the back. So the question um, comes from someone who works in um, the art world um, and no- notices that there's, it's a very sexualized world in a lot of ways. Is that a reflection of the sexual revolution. John Paul II says some really interesting things, and let me just try to summarize a few of them very, very succinctly and quickly here. Um, he makes a distinction in the catechesis between pornography and art that involves nudity. And he says the difference is pornography objectifies those it portrays. It it strips its subjects not just of their clothes, but of their dignity. They're reduced to body parts or body parts in motion. Whereas art that involves nudity, that's authentic art, presents its subjects as persons. You see the dignity of the person presented through the medium of the body. That's the difference. That's the key difference, right? So, I mean, this problem predates the sexual revolution. Scholars date the rise of pornography back to the Renaissance and, and perhaps even earlier. So um, it's not, not a new problem. John Paul makes one other really, I think, interesting and important comment, and I think Father Petrie will get into this more in one of his talks, and that is, it's also what we bring to the art, because a person who is in the grip of the vice of lust, can look at authentic art involving the human body and it can produce lust in him or her, right? That's not the result of the artist or the art, that's the beholder, right? The the disordered desire is in the eye of the beholder in that case. So it's also the impact on the, it's what we bring to it that also um, impacts whether we're able to appreciate art, authentic art uh, for what it is, as opposed to pornography. Um, that's the beginnings of a conversation. We, there's a lot more we could say. I think the sexual revolution has amped this up. I think modern art, because it's it's kind of detached itself from metaphysical reality and being grounded in creation, is more susceptible to that kind of distortion. But... Um, Great, great question. You guys are a really thoughtful group. So, um, thank you all for your your um, participation and your attention.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks